Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art anytime. Hello and welcome to the Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, in the last episode of the series, we look at the top exhibitions you can see this summer in the UK, Europe and the US. As well as looking at shows on both sides of the Atlantic, we'll have our usual work of the week, this time chosen by the artist Hassan Hajaj, who looks at an album cover for Dr Alimentado's 1978 debut, The Best Dressed Chicken in Town. Before all that, I'm going to hand over to me to tell you about a new podcast dropping next week from the team behind The Week in Art. This August, we're launching A Brush With, a weekly conversation with a leading artist in which we explore their work and their life through their cultural experiences, the historic and living artists they most admire, the museums that they return to, the books, music and other media that inspire them, the art that's pinned to their studio walls. As an art critic, I embrace all forms of contemporary art, but I do have a particular soft spot for painting. And so this first series of A Brush With features four interviews with painters. And in the first episode, I speak to the Kenyan-British artist, Michael Armitage. There isn't another artist like Goya. There isn't another artist that paints like Goya that can do the things that he does, which quite frankly should be terrible, <laughs> but they're utterly convincing. He reflects on very difficult aspects of human nature. The, the textures of the paint in those paintings, it's just an incredibly daring way of using the stuff, right? Unbelievable. Like, there's something immense about being in the presence of that because you, you understand so much about somebody. So join us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts for a brush with Michael Armitage, dropping on the 5th of August. See you then. Now, museums have been steadily reopening over the past few weeks, and given that this is the last episode of the present series of The Week in Art, we thought we'd remind you about some of the exhibitions that have reopened or newly opened with them. Our US team will talk about shows there a bit later, but first I was joined by Gareth Harris, Chief Contributing Editor at the Art Newspaper, and Anna Brady, our Market Editor, to talk about the UK and Europe. Anna and Gareth, before we start talking about specific exhibitions, I'd just like to talk to you about your experiences so far of sort of going back into galleries and museums after all this time uh, where you haven't been able to at all. Gareth, how have you found going back into museums and these new one-way systems and all these new mechanisms? It's been um, pretty disconcerting, actually. I started to visit galleries quite a long time ago, about four weeks ago. So I walked into Green Park and at one point I think I was the only person on Piccadilly. So that was scary. It felt quite apocalyptic. So I started with the commercial galleries and I went to the National Gallery about 10 days ago after it first opened. And it seems to be very prescriptive. You have to follow these set routes, these set itineraries. They call them A, B and C. Um, and I thought, oh no, that's going to be, that's really going to hinder the whole art viewing experience but of course, it was just incredible because the fewer people there are and the more space you have, the more pleasurable it is to see the art, you know. So I think I went on Route B at the National Gallery and 
I sort of wound my way around lots of paintings by Caravaggio, Rubens, that kind of thing. Um, saw some astonishing portraits by Tintoretto and then saw the new acquisition by uh, by Pissarro, which was fantastic. But yeah, I mean, it, it's something you have to get used to. And I mean, it it is a fantastic experience. You have to enter a whole new world of booking a slot online. I think that even includes press people. We're not that special. Um, <laughs> uh, the hand sanitizer has to be liberally applied along the way. Um, National Gallery is quite keen for you to buy the customised face masks in the, uh, in, the, in the gift shop. Van Gogh is, I think, a top seller. But it's interesting. I mean, obviously, it's, it just makes for a much better experience. I've never been in the National Gallery when it's so empty. And I think they've just unveiled the new rousing room, which is this centrepiece room. And that was incredible to see all these Caravaggios, to see the Gentileschi works there. But of course, the big question is how viable will that be long term financially? You know, I can't see how these huge museums, which are operating at much less capacity, will be able to sustain themselves long term. Yeah. What about the commercial galleries, Anna? Because, you know, they've been open for some time now. And um, I've that's the only gallery experience I've had so far. I've been to one commercial gallery and I've sort of still basically effectively been in lockdown. But But it's... Uh, you know, they've been open for quite a while. Do you think it's, I mean, obviously, commercial galleries, as we all know, are largely quite empty anyway, so and, and austere anyway. But is it, do they feel any more austere, in your opinion? Yeah, it's a good point. It's, I think somebody quipped um, a little while ago that social distancing has existed in commercial galleries for quite a long time. A lot of those white cubes in Mayfair and things are, can be fairly foreboding. Um, I went, I'm like you, Ben, I haven't been to any museums, I have to confess, post lockdown, so I can't comment on that. But yesterday, I haven't really been in London at all. And yesterday, I went on the tube for the first time and went into the West End for the first time, which again, felt, it felt very, very weird, like Gareth was saying, being on the tube, although now it is busier. Um, But actually, what I found was, I found it quite disconcerting, um, having had a fairly rural sort of existence. Um getting on the tube and being in what was quite a busy Oxford circus. But then I went around the corner and into um, Alison Jack's gallery to see the Gordon Parks show and um, and then Sadie, Sadie Coles. And both of them actually felt like little kind of, they were sort of like oases. I mean, that's sort of where you want to be. They were wonderful. Both of them were completely empty, aside from there's a couple of other people in one. Um and as Gareth was saying, it makes for quite a nice experience to see art. And it was nice to actually see things just in the flesh again and not through a JPEG. And I think maybe having had a sort of, having fasted in some ways for a few months, seeing things in the flesh again felt great. And I mm. went to two really great shows. Yeah, so having had a kind of that sort of fasted experience, um, suddenly, suddenly seeing things again in the flesh, it felt like you were seeing things sort of, and knew a little bit, and I think I definitely appreciated it more. I was less jaded than I would be normally. I suppose after the experience of, well, the avalanche of digital offerings, which I think we all became a... I mean, we were very fortunate, actually, to get so many good things to see online, but I think we became a little bit jaded, and I suppose we could go so far as to say our experience has been heightened now when you actually get back into the galleries. I mean, it sounds slightly corny, but perhaps perhaps you spot details you didn't see before because you've got more time and the whole blockbuster exhibition experience has become a bit debilitating, I think so. You know, we don't have time to stop and look at the sort of detail of, of works and paintings and sculpture. So who knows, perhaps the digital experience has given us new eyes. When we were talking about what to discuss today, 
it really occurred to me that the museums certainly and some of the commercial galleries too really had press pause and there was this question of extending the shows and so much of what we're going to talk about today had actually opened even if very briefly before lockdown so let's begin by talking about Titian this is an exhibition we discussed uh, on the podcast at length uh, just before lockdown and it is an astonishing show Gareth you went back to the to the National Gallery did you manage to sneak into the Titian while you were there? I did and again it was a very rarefied experience because there were very few people in there um, it, it's so strange looking back Ben I think you were at the press view in March and I think it was literally three or four days before lockdown was announced so I think there was that sense of foreboding as we were looking around the the poesy as they're called and we were all extremely nervous about the future. So going back, I mean, it does feel like Groundhog Day in the weirdest sense, but it was just fantastic. I mean, I, I didn't really appreciate it at the press view, and I didn't have a chance to get back there before. But to see those, I think it's the six paintings, isn't it, that um, Titian's mythological paintings made in the 1550s and 1560s for Philip II of Spain... And it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. I think you've written about this pretty extensively as well. Um, it's amazing. They've got the Rape of Europa from the Isabella Stewart Gardner in Boston. Yeah, that's an astonishing painting. Yeah. yeah. And for the first time ever, the Wallace Collection's been allowed to learn Pusses and Andromeda, I think. So going back, reliving the details, and actually looking back over how the critics saw it at the time also helped you. It was a new filter. I think Laura Cummins said something like the skies are transcendently beautiful in most of those works, and I tend to agree with her. So, yeah, it was a fantastic thing to be able to go back, and it's still fairly empty, so book, please. Yeah, I mean, you do need to book, obviously. This is something we need to stress, that all basically all museums and galleries, I mean, commercial galleries, some, some are allowing drop-ins, but basically museums aren't, so do book before you go to any museums. With the Titian, it occurred to me, actually, that, that that's a relative small room it's, it is as you say those six poesia and the, and the unfinished poesia which is in the um uh, national gallery's own collection and so it did occur to me that it's a relatively small room and then you would never have been able to see those works like you will in this new era because they the room would have been that much more packed and with social distancing you are going to get access to those titian paintings if you're lucky enough to get a ticket which no one would have had uh, had covid19 not hit and um, it, it really is an astonishing show let's move on to the Tate. Uh, Gareth, again, you went to the Tate last week when it reopened for the first time. It reopened to the public on Monday. Um, there is one sadness in all of this. I mean, it's probably the, the most high-profile show which didn't reopen after lockdown, and that's the Steve McQueen show. Sadly, they could not make that work with social distancing because of darkness, because of rooms that only had one entrance and exit and various things. So Steve McQueen sadly only lasted for five weeks, but they have reopened the Warhol show. Gareth, how is it? Is there anything different? Um, I suppose the main difference is that there's the room full of the silver balloons, which is one of Warhol's party pieces as such and those helium balloons you well before pre-covid you were able to interact with those balloons you could move them around but um i ran through and i noticed that nearly all the silver balloons are now up on the ceiling so they've filled them with helium they were above your head they're not a public health hazard in any sense so the silver balloons are kind of you know they, they are complying with COVID-19 you'll all be glad to hear that's right again at the press view of that show again it was just before the lockdown and I remember then lots of people saying 
they can't have these balloons that people are handling and just passing on to the next person. It's, it's a massive risk. So you think they've used more helium, basically? They have. I mean, I, I asked Tate as well uh, earlier this week what's, what's happened with the balloons, and they've basically inflated them more. <laughs> so basically, there's no more interaction. You can't touch them, you know, which is a shame, really, I guess, because that was the whole point, that we all had fun and games courtesy of Andy Warhol. We, we haven't actually had the chance to discuss this show. We sort of rather dismissed it at the start of the year by saying, oh, yeah, it's another, another, another Andy Warhol show. Do we really need another Andy Warhol show? But actually, I found it quite interesting because they wanted to be quite ambitious about Warhol and to present him in a new light to try and emphasise certain aspects like his Catholicism, his identity as a gay man, uh, get more of the biography in there. How mm. do you feel that worked? I don't know. I mean... In- I think in some ways, I tend to agree with you, I think it's a very timid show in a sense, you know. Um, I think perhaps more could have been made of the se- his sexuality. It kind of needed a gayer dimension, I suppose, really. Um, but it is, it's a fantastic survey when you think about it. It's got the big hits, it's got the green Coca-Cola bottles, it's got the um, screen test series, and as a finale, it's got the 60 Last Suppers. And I suppose the biggest draw for me is the Ladies and Gentlemen series, which were the um, portraits of the African-American transgender women and drag queens, which I think was recently discovered by Take Curators. And that's a real draw. I think that's a fantastic find. But I do, I, I, I see what you mean, Ben. I think it's a timid show. I mean, perhaps it shows him in a more human light. I think they could have gone further, though, though. Couldn't you? Like, you're right, timid's the right word. It's, it's, it's like they could have gone further, make it more Catholic, more gay, <laughs> you know, just more. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's just, I feel like, like the ladies and gentlemen, as you say, is the best room in the show because it's a really, and also because I think Warhol works in, in great depth. So when you, when you walk into a Warhol room of Marilyn's, I want to see 10 Marilyn's in different colours. I don't want to see one. Or whatever. And I feel like Mm. lots of points in the show, they've got one image to represent a body of work. And it just sort of feels sort of thin in in the sense that those really stonking Warhol shows really do kind of hit you hard with that repetitious kind of relentlessness, you know. Yeah, I agree with you. It's the thinnest, greatest hits compendium. And and I suppose it's very telling that my most abiding memory are the fright wigs, the wigs Warhol used to wear. And I think he kind of, um, I think he glued them onto his head. You know, he was he was very insecure, obviously. So the most abiding memory I have are the wigs and also that amazing portrait by Richard Avedon of Warhol after he was shot in 1968, I think, by, the, uh, by Valerie Solanas and how he lived with a chronic pain after that. And, I mean, his body's a patchwork of scars. I don't know if you remember it, Ben. Yeah, utterly extraordinary. Yeah, the scars across his torso. Um, mm. And you just realised how utterly remarkable it was that he survived, actually. Exactly. So I think it does show me in a much more human light, but I, I agree with you. I kind of wanted more. It's a thin selection, I'm afraid. At Tate Britain, there's um, Aubrey Beardsley. That's the sort of big show that reopened again, only only open for a very short period before lockdown. Um, it's a show which is, I think, remarkable because so many Beardsley presentations feature his prints. This is dominated by the drawings and bloody hell, what a draftsman he was. Oh, it's incredible. I mean, I think he died in, 19, in 1898, age 25, and he was aware of his impending death. I think it was from tuberculosis. So his output was was incredible as such. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be popular again. What I think really struck me was how his kind of decadent works really struck a chord with the 
counterculture generation post-1960s. So I think in the final section, they look at how he just became much more popular post-war. I thought that was very interesting. There was a huge show of his works at the V&A, I think, in the late 60s, and the show discusses all that. But I also like how they... I mean, basically, the subversive aspect of Beasley's work, that underpins the whole thing. And I love... I mean, it's quite rude in part, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, it's, it's got his racy illustrations for Oscar Wilde's Salome, which I think is the most incredible... That gives you the most incredible insights into his motivations and technique. And there's a sort of uh, cordoned-off room where you can see his designs for an ancient Greek comedy. Um, and it, I think there's a piece called The Toilet of Lampito, which shows Cupid, Cupid powder in Lampito's bottom. I think that says it all about Beardsley. I think he did need to be reassessed, Ben, do you think? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think so, because I think, weirdly, you get some... He, he, Beardsley become, has become a little bit... It's been filtered through reproduction quite a lot. And as you say, there's the dynamic kind of really quite decadent and, and actually super um, subversive and radical for their own time. Yeah. It, 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 you know, that really does come through. Well, I suppose I've been slightly contradictory here. I've said he struck a chord with the counterculture generation. He became a favourite then, I guess, of student bedrooms worldwide, perhaps in the 70s, not so much now. So that's sort of... uh, (laughs) I think that's underplaying his skill, to be honest. So I'm really glad that we get another chance to see how subversive and skilled he was, really. Um, Well, it's not always students who are into Beardsley, because I had two fairly straight-laced elderly spinster aunts who, in their 80s, used to have these Aubrey Beardsley prints. I think they're in their downstairs loo, but always absolutely... (laughs) It terrified me at that age, but I couldn't quite understand why they were having... They were the proper naughty ones as well. But um, So, yeah takes everyone you can have elderly aunts in uh, Somerset who like them as well <laughs> talking about subversive radical figures um Derek Jarman at the Garden Museum you've been to that and you've written a lot about Jarman he's a kind of a great hero of yours isn't he Gareth yeah he is um just last weekend I went down to Dungeness to see the cottage Prospect Cottage which is uh on Dungeness Beach in Kent and I think he bought the... It's a form of fisherman's shack. It's in the shadow of a nuclear power station. He bought it for £32,000 in 1986. And I think um, I think it's, I think it's that kind of discovery or buy-in that cottage helped him cope with the trauma of his HIV diagnosis. So he transformed the place. I mean, if you've been down to the beach, you see it's quite desert-like. It's on shingle. There's just a few houses you know, dotted around the landscape. If you There's want a nuclear to go to the power the station nearby. <laughs> I think it's decommissioned, so you can you can go for a swim, although, you know, you might come out green or something. But anyway, so, <laughs> no, I mean, he is, a, he is a real hero of mine. And the way he's transformed the, the garden outside um, and, and his, you know, the artworks he made there, you st- they still need to be seen. So now there's a show at the Garden Museum, which is part of Lambeth Palace, Um and it's brought together works, photographs, personal artefacts, garden tools, um, garden, some very intensely personal garden journals, because he was an expert on flowers and plants. So I think the curator told me she considers Jarma to be one of the most original and influential gardeners of the 20th century, and I tend to agree with her, actually. But yeah, go along. It's 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 a sort of uh, it's a small replica of the cottage of Prospect Cottage. If you want to know more about Jarman and what a 
what a visionary he was, really, in every sense, um, before he died. I mean, he died in 1994, way too soon. It's pretty heartbreaking, I find. But please go to the Garden Museum to have a look. Let's let's look at some of the exhibitions at museums in the East End. Uh, Radical figures at the Whitechapel. We can touch on that briefly. We've 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 done fair fair amount about it on the podcast. It's still open. I'm pleased it's still open because I think it's a, a really interesting show about contemporary painting. Loads of really interesting painters: Michael Armitage, Chabalala Self, who we talked to on the podcast. It's. It, I think I thought it was a really successful show. Actually, it got me thinking about painting a lot. Yeah, I think so. I think in the age of video and the internet, um, the death of painting has long been anticipated, exaggerated, whatever you want to call it. So I think it was a good, I think it's a very sort of decent barometer of what's going on in painting now as well. I think we need to, to have that kind of analysis and survey. I mean, I also like San, I also like the Russian painter's work, Sanya Kantorovsky. I thought some of some of those works showed very unsettling and unapologetic scenes as such but the I mean my favorite as you say Ben is Michael Armitage he's having a bit of a moment and some of his works are extraordinary so he's he's got a more prominent platform now but he definitely deserves it don't you think absolutely yeah and people should listen to my interview with Michael on the Brush With podcast next week um it's interesting I want to ask you Anna about this because one of the things that was interesting about about when that show opened was that lots of people were talking about the market and painting because we know that paintings are a very saleable commodity but lots of those artists are very 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 much of the moment market-wise, aren't they? Like Chabalala Self, who I mentioned. Yeah, I was going to say that, actually. Um, I also love that show and all of those artists, too, and a big fan of Michael Armitage, who has risen in the past sort of two, three years, I think, from barely known to, um, you know, since that South London show, I think, a few years ago, to to really being a star. Um, But actually, but that show was one of those ones where you feel like you could be running around an art fair like it felt very much tapped into the market now those artists are kind of very on trend um from a commercial point of view as well um I'm not quite sure how I feel but I think maybe I come to it with too much of awareness of the market as well so in some ways although I loved all the works there and that show it I also kind of felt maybe the hand of the market or the kind of commercial hand in there quite strongly too, which perhaps is is inevitable. But I don't know whether you agree on that, Gareth. Um, But, you know, I did sort of feel like it could be going around, say, an art fair, like an art Basel or when art fairs used to happen. Um, But, or maybe an auction, you know, even a sort of auction house view and you'd get a similar sort of mix of those I think that's true, yeah. I think the hand of the market is, is there. I think Shabalala herself recently had a record price at auction, didn't she? I think two or three months ago. So, I mean, I know it doesn't always overlap, and I'm not completely sure of the timings, but I think they've picked... I mean, actually, we should say as well it's ten painters, ten figurative painters. So perhaps we should be a bit clearer about that. Um, and I think you're right. I think Michael Armitage, his kind of auction record is is improving or has improved hasn't it over the last year but his piece which is Kampala's suburb shows two I think two men kissing beneath a kind of wall freeze it's so powerful it obviously alludes to some sort of dictatorship um I think you know I mean he definitely deserves to be in there as well Absolutely. Yeah, when I say the hand of the market shouldn't take away from the fact that a lot of them I think are great paintings and it's one I'm a big fan of representational painting as well. Um so it's nice in that twenty years ago 
you know, we were being told at art school that you had to justify why you wanted to use a redundant medium, or I was, um, but suddenly, suddenly it's coming back, which I, yeah, so I, I, I'm thrilled. I mean, do you think post-COVID, we've had this kind of, we, we've always lived in a super fast disposable society. Does painting take on, does it become even more worthwhile now as such? I'm not sure as a medium. Perhaps we'll be reassessing mediums post-pandemic, I'm not sure. Yeah. And those you really want to see in the flesh. So I'm desperate to see a Titian painting. I'm desperate to go and look around, you know, the National Gallery as well. And as you were talking about the balloons, this um, sort of trend of interactive art as well is just not going to be able to happen for quite a while. So we will maybe have to go back to those sorts of possibly more traditional mediums. Obviously, there are loads of uh, museums and galleries outside London. I'm just going to list a few of the things that are happening outside London that seem to me to be really compelling. Um, first, it's important to say that the Scottish National Galleries are not yet open. They say they are opening in August. They told us that on the 9th of July. We still, up to today, which is the 30th of July, do not have dates for the Scottish National Galleries reopening. So check their social media, check their website, etc. Otherwise, there are obviously the two Tates uh, outside of London. There's Tate Liverpool, where there's an Emily Speed exhibition, which is well worth seeing. Tate St Ives have a Nam Garbo exhibition, which which sounds fantastic. Nottingham Contemporary have a Denzel Forrester show. Denzel Forrester, a fantastic black British painter who painted these amazing scenes of dub clubs in the 1970s and actually has been to uh, Kingston, Jamaica recently to make some new paintings. That sounds an amazing show, and that's at Nottingham Contemporary. And then Turner Contemporary in Margate, Uh, has a show called We Will Walk Art and Resistance in the American South, which I, again, think looks really fascinating and focuses on the civil rights era, uh, works from the 1950s and 1960s. And go to Pallant House in Chichester if you can. Great permanent collection of modern British art and an interesting looking show of Barnett Friedman's, who's a uh, commercial designer, Designs for Modern Britain, it's called, and he's a contemporary of Eric Revilius, much loved British illustrator. um, And that looks really good too. We're going to turn to the EU now and just a few of the real highlights. I guess the biggest show arguably of the year is the Raphael show in Rome, Gareth, and that has reopened. Uh, It seems to me like it's a pretty mega show. Yeah, I think that's uh, a huge reopening as such. It's the uh, the Scuderia del Quirinale uh, in Rome, and it was organised to mark the 500th anniversary of the Renaissance master's death. I think the, there, are works, there are works on loan from around 52 museums, galleries, uh, and galleries worldwide. And the Uffizi's a partner, isn't it? The Uffizi in Florence is a partner, which is obviously crucial. Yeah, I think the Uffizi has loaned over 50 works, which is quite incredible, so... I think it does say a lot about this international collaboration between museums um, and how I think there was this huge fear that post-pandemic certain shows wouldn't be extended as such. But obviously, um, I was talking to Taco Dibbitz this morning, he's the director of the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, and he was saying that the network has swung into action as such. You know, a lot of shows have reopened because obviously there's a knock-on effect with all museums and galleries. Um, it's quite amusing. I mean, I was looking at some Instagram feeds on the Raphael and there's obviously a very strict system there in terms of <laughs> chivying people through and, and one or two people are complaining that the tour guides are too strict. One Instagram feed says um, it's the art equivalent of supermarket sweep, which made me... <laughs> and she, this lady says on Instagram she was constantly being told off for attempting to merge into the group behind. <laughs> Sorry, it's making me laugh. So, 
but this is a new reality, isn't it? These weird <laughs> mechanisms that museums now have to put in place to to get people through the gallery. It's kind of odd. I mean, you talked about a very positive experience of the Titian, for instance. But mm. yeah, I can imagine that must be really annoying if you're having to be guided through a show of such importance. Well, totally. I mean, I think there's there's key there's key works there. There's the uh, Alba Madonna from the National Gallery in Washington. There's other amazing pieces like the Madonna of the Rose from the Prado. It's ironic, isn't it? We've just discussed that people would now have, perhaps have more time to to dwell on paintings, but obviously, according to certain social media posts, that's not quite the experience everywhere. So, if you want to take part in the art equivalent of supermarket sweep, that's a subjective viewpoint. <laughs> perhaps head to Rome. <laughs> I should say to people that uh, that are listening that that um, I should say to listeners that actually uh, we have a review of the Raphael show by Arnold Nesselrath, who was the former uh, Vatican Museum's director, and uh, he was very keen on it, and he really particularly admired this the fact that it does uh, Raphael's career in reverse. Curiously, he said that British curators were much more sceptical about that idea, which is a curious idea. Now you mentioned Taco Dibbits there, and so we're going to move to his gallery now, the Rijks Museum. They've taken the the Caravaggio Bernini show which has come from the Kunsthistorisches Museum in Vienna and um an extraordinary show they were labeled baroque stars in Vienna sadly <laughs> um but um it seems to me that this is pretty much as good as a show of those two baroque artists and the, and the circles around them as you can get yeah, I mean, as I said, I spoke to Taco. He's so happy. The show, I think, has been extended now until September. Um, it looks at the period from 1600 to 1640, comparing Caravaggio and Bernini. Um, I mean, he sort of looks at the chiaroscuro, those kind of different techniques employed by both artists. And it was good to talk to Taco because he's not operating the one-way system there. He says some of the rooms and corridors are too narrow for this kind of thing, which I think is quite interesting. He said he's operating at a fifth of the capacity and losing around a million euros a week, they think, in revenue. So um, it's it's interesting because I, you know, I suppose, as we said at the beginning of this discussion, the financial model in Europe and the US depends on earned revenue or income as such. Ticket, tickets, you know, and bums on seats, that kind of thing. And I think when I went to the Tate... There was very much an emphasis on attracting local audiences into the museum to try and make up for those lost numbers and funding. I mean, Francis Mo- Morris was talking about Southwark, audiences in Southwark, which, you know, is the borough Tate Modern is located in. Which I understand. I mean, personally, I'm not quite sure how this all adds up on the financial front. <laughs> So let's move on to uh, Christo, who, of course, very sadly died recently. Just before he died, he had been planning this big show with the Pompidou and also to wrap the Arc de Triomphe, which is still happening, but next year, I believe. Um, This show at the Pompidou in Paris is all about Paris and they have quite an affinity with Paris, don't they? Yeah, it's interesting because, as you say, Christo sadly died and the show opened earlier this year at the Pompidou it's it's important because it looks at I think their Parisian period when they were focused and working on the city between 1958 and 1964 but in 1985 they wrapped the Pont Neuf in the middle of Paris which was a a huge project at the time they wrapped it in a kind of sandstone coloured canvas covered the sides uh, and the vaults of the bridge even covered the um the 44 lamps around the bridge, I think. So there's a big part of the show that focuses on that wrapping project, which is their trademark style, isn't it? Yeah. And, and medium as such. Um, 
so yeah, it's a, it's a it's a very interesting uh, precursor to the wrapping of the Arc de Triomphe. And you're right, Ben, that was meant to be take place this autumn, but it's now been pushed back to autumn twenty twenty one. And there were also some kestrels nesting on the on the um on the top as well. So that's also halted the whole Christo project there. I think it's sort of vaguely heartening somehow that wildlife is more important than, than art. Exactly. <laughs> Nature's reclaiming us in every way. <laughs> We're going to focus on commercial galleries in a moment, but just before we do, there is one project which sounds completely bonkers, frankly, and it's in Rotterdam. Yeah, this is quite interesting. So the Museum Boymans van Buningen... I hope I pronounced that correctly, from, I think, the 1st to the 23rd of April, they are going to host an exhibition in an arena called Ahoy, A-H-O-Y, which is also in the centre of Rotterdam. And you will not be able to go in on foot. You will have to drive an electric car around this arena. So I think this arena must be similar to the O2 in London or Wembley, something like that. It is a big concert venue there, yeah. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. So I think there's going to be large-scale works by artists such as Paul McCarthy, Bruce Nauman, all drawn from the collection. You get a car, you either take your own electric car or you hire one, and you drive around the works. So you light up the works with the headlights of the car. That's how you're going to be able to view these pieces. So, I don't know, I think that's quite exciting. I'll probably try and get along to see it. Um, Somehow I don't think it's something that's going to be replicated. One can't imagine the turbine hall with loads of cars driving around it, for instance. Well, I guess you've got to have the space as well, haven't you? Um, And the kind of, the scale of the works has to be right and suitable. But perhaps that's the way art viewing is going to go. We just do it from the comfort of our cars. Um, It's not just in Rotterdam, though. In Venice, apparently, they've started doing outdoor cinema, which you can watch from your boat um, on the lagoon. And then they have other little boats. I think they showed Jaws. I'm not quite sure whether they've just shown it or they're going to be showing it, but they're doing a series of outdoor cinema. So, yeah, you sit there in your boat and then there are lots of other little boats who come around and serve you your... Aperol spritz and gelato and things whilst you're watching from your boat. So there may not be any Biennales, but you can go and uh, watch cinema from from your boat in the lagoon, which sounds rather wonderful. Maybe that's a future for video art, given that they're having to close shows which feature video art in its traditional formats. Maybe that's that. Maybe that's the way forward. Commercial galleries, then. Let's let's look at them. Uh, Anna, you've that's your sort of territory at the art newspaper. Um, one thing I'm intrigued by is before lockdown, we had the relentless pace of exhibitions opening every month. Do you think that this is something that's going to keep going? Will it pick up pace or do you think we're into a new era in terms of the timing of how things are done? In some ways it has because they're literally showing some of the same shows which sort of barely opened, like they were covered in dust sheets or something um, for, for a few months and they've now reopened. But um, it feels very, very different. I went around some of these commercial shows for the first time yesterday having felt like I was maybe missing out on a lot. And as you said, it's my territory. It's meant to be my territory covering the art market, but I felt very much like it's this abstract thing in the past few few months that exists only online. So interesting to go around them. Um, I think what is going to happen is you'll see this sort of slowdown in exhibition schedules. Um, there's been, in recent years, there's been this sort of monthly churn or almost monthly churn at money galleries of exhibitions and interestingly talking to Stuart Shave who's just opened a new gallery in St James's in London and he was saying yesterday that they're going to start sort of doing like three month long shows and I think quite a lot of other people are thinking of doing the same as well because 
there isn't really the demand now uh, for putting on these sort of constant shows. We've all slowed down. And so that that very concept of, you know, sort of every every week having private views, that whole culture, I think is going to take a little while for it to come back. So they're sort of all taking a slightly slower approach um, when it comes to exhibitions. There aren't the fairs going on as well. And it was interesting. He was saying, you know, I feel like I'm doing my job now. I'm not spending my whole time flying around the world, going to fairs. And, um, and you know, there was quite a lot of that that we were all doing. So he's now in his gallery much more and he's doing his job. And a lot of people are kind of playing shop a lot more. It's interesting, isn't it? Because exactly what Gareth was saying just about about Tate Modern and museums a moment ago, one feels like we're still in a sort of stasis where the effects of all this haven't really kicked in because, you know, and, and, and really the financial ramifications of this are only going to kick in, in in the coming months because it's it seems to me that the whole model of the art world was based on the way things were running, this relentless pace, this volume uh, you know, of, of shows, this utterly relentless travel across the globe. And one wonders how actually any of this new era can provide sustainability for these institutions, both commercial and museum-wise. Anna? Yeah, I think I think there was a certain amount of sort of presenteeism when it came to both people actually going into the galleries to maybe do their jobs but also to be seen at these fairs as well I think obviously probably a fair amount of the smaller ones won't survive this which is sad for them but maybe maybe that's sort of needed so I think yeah I think that's maybe going to be a kind of cultural shift and this new galleries um, climate coalition as well um, that are several of the galleries are involved in trying to kind of create a more sustainable art world. Like as with many industries, it's actually been this pandemic that's been the only thing that's really put a stop to all of this traveling. So a few of them are now sort of really putting their effort into into that to make sure that we don't go back to that kind of crazy hectic circuit that we were doing. But that said, I think we'll go back to to some of that. I don't think there's going to be this kind of return to just sitting in your gallery like it's a like it's a shop and barely doing any any traveling I think it'll necessarily come back okay so let's talk about some of those exhibitions that you've been seeing you I mean it, the the exhibition of Gordon Parks at Alison Jakes is, is the show which I've heard more people uh, be expressively positive about than pretty much any other show and Anna you enjoyed that too didn't you I loved it. That was I got off the tube and that was the first show that I went into and it felt so sort of necessary. I mean, actually opening now when it was meant to open in March, but the fact is that it's now open. It actually closes on the 8th of August, so uh, you need to sort of hurry to get to it, but there will be part two in September. But it feels with the Black Lives Matter movement um, and with the death of George Floyd, um, it suddenly feels like this is a show that was meant to happen now it is really based upon two series by Gordon Parks's American photographer um one segregation in the south which was done in 1956 another one which was um on black muslims from 1963 and both of them were commissions from life magazine and it's fantastic because they these photographs are so be- they're aesthetically beautiful and particularly looking at segregation in the South, it was in Alabama of the 1950s. And they are, they're stunning photos of a lot of them of families, of children. You've got 
things like a father taking his two children to go and get an ice cream from a little kiosk and there are the two signs saying whites and coloreds and they're patiently queuing up by the coloreds um sign and there's another with a water fountain and a little girl on her on her tiptoes trying to reach the water fountain labeled coloreds and it's something about the children specifically about the fact that they are so they're all beautifully dressed and beautifully sort of neat and well-behaved little children just quietly accepting this ridiculous ludicrous ludicrous rule that is so wrong and makes you so so angry and and that's the sort of that's the feeling that you get from this whole show that that he is very very quietly showing you that sort of racism that just ran through the whole of kind of society in 1950s Alabama and yeah and it's somehow you know the fact that the children are told that they're not allowed to go and play in a certain playground because that's for white children only and there's a bit in one of the life magazines about a parent trying to explain that to their child and then Gordon Parks obviously went on to become a fashion photographer and so he the way that he photographs clothes as well is fantastic with these beautiful sort of Sunday best outfits as well. Families going out dressed in um, these wonderful kind of absolutely immaculate 1950s clothes. So it feels very much sort of of a certain time and they're beautiful faces as well to look at. He has, has this way of photographing faces which are just so kind of compelling and you get very kind of drawn into wonderful expressions. So anyway, so it's 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 a fabulous show. Um, and also ties in well with David Goldblatt's show, the South African photographer, which I think Gareth has seen, which is down at Goodman Gallery. I haven't seen it in person. I've seen the photographs, um, but they're based on the a series of Johannesburg, which again focuses on um, apartheid and segregation as well. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was, that's just, well, I think that opened two weeks ago at the Goodman Gallery, as you just said, Anna. Um, I think it's incredible because Goldblatt was one of South Africa's leading documentarians of the apartheid era. And I thought I'd, I'd seen everything or most things to do with Goldblatt because he's become a bit of a exhibition favourite in the past few years, I think. But it's it's incredible. It, it's, it sort of concentrates specifically on uh, Johannesburg or he, it's his images of Johannesburg taken between 1948 and 2018, so it sort of spans his life in the South African capital. Um, but what what's really incredible is that he captures the humanity of Soweto, which is the township to the southwest. It was created in the 1930s to keep black people away from the white suburbs, really. You know, as, it, as, as I've said, it's a ghetto. So I think like the Gordon Parks, it just gives, you know, he gave his sitters a sense of dignity as such. Um, that's what comes across. Obviously, also the horrors of apartheid as well. But it, I, I think it's an essential show. So I would recommend getting along to Goodman, definitely. In stark contrast to the sort of seriousness and sort of devastating power of those two shows, there's uh, Sarah Lucas, who always has a sort of ribald, uh, sexually charged um, uh, element to her work. So you And I know that you both enjoyed that show. Gareth, do you want to begin with that? Yeah, I mean... It's interesting, I suppose she's developing in a very bold way <laughs> her exploration of the, the female nude. I think it harks back to her, her bunny series. She's developed this, I think, since 
the late 90s. I remember seeing a show at Sadie Cole's in 97 called Bunny Gets Snookered. So it's a natural progression of that idea, that concept. Um, and when you go into the gallery, you'll see various female figures kind of twisted and bent around chairs and plinths. The furniture is just as important as the figures, actually. She's, she's made those and created those. And how she brings those things together is pretty ingenious. But it's it's so clever because, you know, it, the comic appeal is obvious because you go in, you're startled, you laugh. But she's always had plenty to say about the objectification of the female nude. And she does it here in a witty, clever and original way. I think it's brilliant. Right. Anna, you liked it too. Yeah, I thought it was fantastic. I love the way she's actually divided. I hadn't realised until after I saw it that it, it's uh, Sarah Lucas herself. He's divided the, the that really big gallery that you walk up into into sort of like sort of quadrants with a concrete divide, which looks fantastic. A lot of the uh, chairs as well are actually sort of cast out of concrete and they're all different, the chairs, and you get these sort of mid-century designs. And as Gareth says, the, the chairs are sort of characters in themselves and then you get these amazing um amazing forms contorted and wrapped around around these chairs in a sort of it's a kind of quasi sexual yet it's funny as well and it's a little it's kind of dark in place i don't know how she does it she always sort of teeters on you know it can sort of slip into either way and then the materials are just amazing as well there's there's this stuffed tights and these sort of soft sculptures and then you have the bronzes too and then the co- that that hard concrete um that she uses as well so i sort of i think there's just a lot of kind of juxtapositions of whether it's the sort of the dark and the comic or um hard and soft the shiny and, and and rough and then these amazing shoes as well they're nearly all wearing these kind of crazy um really flamboyant or sort of slightly fetishistic um, shoes as well. So, yeah, I just think it was kind of something, and a show that is great to walk into in films for less because it's very kind of, it's really sort of visceral as well, and you suddenly remember why it's great to see works in the flesh as well, because you get a very kind of physical reaction to these works. So it was you, just you a can't great get one to more kind of palpably physical thing. than Sarah Lucas, can you? You can't, you know, yeah. Because she's such a maker. She's so, so, so hands-on, you know. Yeah, it sort of awakened. It was a great one to sort of, yeah, really... If you're, if you're wondering, do I miss going to exhibitions? Do I miss the art world? Going to something like that makes you sort of think, yeah, I really do, you know, I really do. And this is why it's great to go and see see things in the flesh and um that it kind of feels like it it matters i mean i'm sure there are probably people out there hate it exactly (laughs) well that's a good way i think to sign off gareth and anna thank you so much thanks ben thanks ben have a good summer there are obviously too many shows mentioned there for me to go through all the details, but do check online before you visit any galleries about their policies regarding booking ahead. We'll hear from our New York-based team in a moment, but first, here are a few of the top stories on the Art Newspaper's website this week. 
the exact spot where Vincent van Gogh was painting just a few hours before he shot himself has been found. The picture Tree Roots was identified as his last work a few years ago. Now, an early postcard has made it possible to pinpoint the location. Willem van Gogh, the great-grandson of the artist's brother Theo, and Amsterdam's van Gogh museum director Emily Gordenka have formally unveiled a plaque in Auvers-sur-Oise, the village north of Paris where the artist died on the 29th of July 1890. As Martin Bailey reports, Tree Roots was identified as Van Gogh's last painting in 2012, overturning the long-established belief that the symbolically charged wheat field with crows was the final work. The Hirshhorn Museum in Washington DC has halted its planned exhibition John Rathman, The Ride Never Ends, after several women made allegations of misconduct against Rathman on social media, as first reported by the Montreal Gazette. Helen Stoilus reports that the Hirshhorn said that it was aware of the allegations and has made the decision not to move forward with the exhibition at this time, according to a spokeswoman. The move follows the suspension of Rathman's show at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Montreal last week. And finally, the Museum of Contemporary Art Detroit announced this week that it had terminated its relationship with its executive director, Alicia Borowie-Reader, after an independent inquiry, writes Wallace Ludell. The move comes after the museum placed her on leave earlier this month in response to a letter signed by more than 70 former employees asserting that Borrowy Reader created a toxic environment which has isolated current and former staff members and has left the museum's reputation in the local community hanging on by a thread. You can read these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can get from the App Store. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Christie's 20th century sales present unique opportunities to acquire works by some of the biggest names in modern, post-war and contemporary art, as well as by icons of American and Latin American paintings. With live and online auctions through August, Christie's invites you to browse and bid on works by Jean Dubuffet, Tomu Gokita, Kenny Scharf and Sarah Hughes. Explore American and Latin American artists ranging from Mary Cassatt, Milton Avery and Norman Rockwell to Fernando Botero, Rufino Tamayo and Leonora Carrington. Browse the sales, explore the works in rich detail and read more about the highlights at christies.com auctions slash 20th century. Welcome back. Now, to discuss summer shows in the US, our editor in the Americas, Helen Stoilus, and senior editor Nancy Kenny, were joined by the art critic Gillian Steinhauer. Gillian, did you want to start off with some of the exhibitions that you were um, eager about? Do you mind if we kind of like lead off with you? Sure. I mean, I think the caveat is that I don't know if I'll see any of the exhibitions that look interesting to me. Like a lot of I mean, just in terms of who's actually reopening right now, I mean, I didn't look super far ahead into the fall. Um, I assume, you know, more New York museums will reopen. But I was looking at stuff that's reopening soon. And that, like, under normal circumstances, I would probably try to go see. So, for instance, the On My Lay show at Carnegie Museum of Art. Um, it's the first comprehensive survey of her work. Um so, like, that's a show that, you know, if I were more mobile, I would totally try to go see. Yeah, no, that sounds amazing. And we have an interview with her in, in, the, in the current issue. And it sounds that's got a lot to do with Vietnam, but also um, race and, and everything that's kind of been going on yeah, nationally. Definitely. You know, and in the U.S. Um, and, you know, I was, you know, this again, this would have been like a trip the proper trip but um state of the art at crystal bridges like i was sort of hoping to see that and they've extended it but i doubt i'm gonna get there um 
but I'm, I'm glad that they've extended it because, you know, it hadn't been up for very long before the pandemic. Well, State of the Art, it's a survey of contemporary art from around the country, but I feel like it's really an interesting, it's often positioned this way, and I think it's fair, it's an interesting counterpoint to the Whitney Biennial, let's say, which, although it was very diverse last year, is still very focused on the coasts, the East Coast specifically, um, certain networks of artists. And when you do that kind of survey in Arkansas, you just have a totally different view of the art world and of artists. So I was, yeah, that one had been on my radar before because I want to know what people in the middle of the country are making that I don't see all the time on the, on the East Coast, you know? The question of traveling is a big part of um, exhibition viewing. You know, we had gotten used to being able to go and see exhibitions in other states, see exhibitions in other areas, but that's that's really limited now with things reopening. And a lot of museums are going to have to um, reorient themselves towards a more local audience, even New York galleries, you know, which have for a really long time been used to cultural tourists and um, and and having that be a big part of their their audience. So now it's going to become much more local, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, you know? I agree, actually. I don't think it's a bad thing. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, seeing, seeing those kinds of exhibitions opening up in Arkansas or in, in, you know, um, Pennsylvania or Nancy, you have a bunch that you were interested in kind of further afield as well. They're very scattered, you know, because different states have different restrictions. And of course, as we all know, New York museums have not been allowed to reopen yet. And you have shows that have resumed that were cut off in mid-March the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, for example, which raised a lot of eyebrows by deciding to open way back in May, has reopened Glory of Spain, which is a traveling exhibition of masterworks from the Hispanic Society Museum and Library in New York. Um, it includes around 200 objects that span 4,000 years of Hispanic art and culture. And since the Hispanic Society's collections are unparalleled outside Spain, the show really gives you an opportunity to feast on paintings by Velazquez and de Zerbran and Goya, as well as drawings and sculptures and illuminated manuscripts and textiles. Um, they recommend advanced time tickets like many other museums. There's another one at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts in Richmond um, that's called Working Together. And it focuses on a group called the Camoingue Workshop. And it tells this long overlooked story of 15 black photographers who began meeting in Harlem in 1963 to challenge and critique each other's work. They were also seeking a form of justice, you might say, because back then, mainstream magazines and art galleries offered few opportunities to non-white photographers. And these photographers wanted to document truths about their communities that weren't conveyed by white photographers. It feels very much of the moment right now, given what's going on across the country. Um, with that show, I think uh, it's useful to note also that even though a lot of us may not be able to travel to go see it, they did a really good job of putting it online. So like early in the pandemic, when I was trying to look at shows online, which is kind of frustrating, um, I had tweeted like, you know, has anyone seen any, any actually good online exhibitions? And um, this uh, historian and writer who I've worked with and I'm friends with, John Edwin Mason, sent a link to the MFA's. Uh, online version of the show and they did a pretty good job of like transferring that show online so it's an interesting case where obviously it'd be better to see it in person but you could also check it out on the internet oh that's cool and then there are the shows that are scheduled to open in the future like Jillian mentioned a few like the Art Institute of Chicago is lucky enough to have planned 
um, this long-awaited Monet exhibition. It's called Monet in Chicago, and it relies solely on loans from local collectors. Um, and it, this this collecting goes back to like 1890, uh, when you have one couple who would go on to collect uh, 90 of Monet's canvases. Um, but so the Art Institute is going to be able to open the show on the 5th of September. I mean, it's drawn from its own collection, too. I think the Art Institute owns maybe 33 paintings by Monet, um, the largest collection outside Paris. So you do have these bright spots here and there. Oh, that's good for the people of Chicago. <laughs> that's a very good one for the people of Chicago. We have only one major New York museum that has announced plans to reopen, which is the Met. And they hope to open their Fifth Avenue flagship building on the 29th of August. Although that's, of course, dependent on state officials lifting this ban they currently have on operating in museums and theaters. Um, but the lineup includes two shows that have been due to open in the spring, but were delayed by the COVID-19 closings, including an ambitious one celebrating the 150th anniversary of the museum's founding. It's called Making the Met. And it deals not only with the museum's founding decades after 1870, but chapters like its archaeological excavations abroad and its effort to construct an American narrative, you know, celebrating the U.S. Interestingly, it will also touch on how the museum missed the boat on several occasions in collecting modernist works. You know, obviously it was far eclipsed by MoMA. And it'll drive home just how significantly the Met has shifted in its collecting approach you know, by making a greater commitment to non-Western and contemporary art. Another show they have on the schedule is, involves a series of paintings by Jacob Lawrence called Struggle. And it reunites, I think, 23 of 30 panels that he executed um, in around 1954, 1956. And it's going to be really poignant to see them all together. Um, they all measure 12 by 16 inches and they depict these stirring or wrenching moments in American history with these vivid raking lines. Um, the colors really make them pop. One of the bigger stories with the Met to me is that the Met Breuer closed and the Gerhard Richter show was up for like nine days total, which I is know. just crazy. I didn't get to see it. Did you get to see it? No, of course not. No. <laughs> like no one got to see I it. I know. <laughs> I know. Exhibitions interrupted. I feel like it was just a huge, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a bit, there's like a small part of me that feels like a bit of schadenfreude, like, ha ha ha. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know. I don't care that much about Gerhard Richter. I should probably shouldn't say that in public, but like, it's kind of funny that of all the shows, <laughs> like it would have been like if the Whitney had, had had to like close the Coon show that it, you know, closed out the Breuer with early or something. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and I, it seems like a lot of New York museums have been waiting to find out, you know, when the Met was going to open to plan their own reopenings. But with this added catch of having to follow the guidelines, it, it doesn't seem it it doesn't seem like we're very close to a lot of New York museums opening. I mean, we haven't heard anything from any of the other big city institutions. Right. I'm also I mean, I'm curious to know what the process is of reopening a museum. Like, how much advance notice do you need? I mean, especially because a lot of these museums laid off a ton of front of house staff, um, which is a whole other thing that I would like to touch on at some point. But I mean, so yeah, how much notice do you need to like uh, make sure you have the staff in place and implement the new protocols and all that stuff? I mean, I'm curious what that looks like. 
They've been working on these protocols for months, but when did, how fast can they put them into action? That's true. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, especially, um, like you say, a lot of gallery staff, the you know, actual people in the, in the physical space um, have been laid off. Um, so yeah, does that mean new hirings or does that mean um, having to limit? I need, we know that we're going to have limited visitorship to museums, right? It won't be the same crowds, which will be nice, but also will limit access to these museums. You've been to, you've been to um, commercial gallery shows, Jillian. What was that kind of like for you? Well, I can, I, I was going to say, I mean, I can definitely talk about that, but I was going to say also like when you talk about like the anxieties of visiting a museum, I had read, uh, I think it was Ted Luce's piece about going to uh, Magazzino mm-hmm. Um and it like made me realize how empty museums are going to be and how much I'm going to love that if I can get over the anxiety of possible COVID like hanging out in the air. Um, so I tweeted, you know, being like, basically, I'm a terrible person because I realized that I'm going to love empty museums now. <laughs> yeah. But but William Powhida, the artist, responded something that I thought was very smart where he said it might be awkward crossing protest lines. Um which I thought was a very astute comment and not surprising coming from him. But, you know, there is this issue, at least for me, and, you know, I touched on this barely in the thing I wrote about uh, visiting galleries. But, I mean, this ethical question of, you know, we're in this moment where institutions are being called out left and right. I mean, museums across the country have laid off tons of staff while they have billionaires on their boards. They've been called out for racism. There have been tons of open letters about horrible toxic culture workplaces. So what do you, how do we respond to that while also wanting to see the art that's inside the museums? This is something that for me, I mean, it was already there in my brain, but especially now it feels very foregrounded. Yeah. Can you show your support for the workers, but also show your support for the artists? And how do you do that? Exactly. Yeah. And like, if there were, you know, I don't know if there will will be protests or picket lines, but like. Would we cross those as press? I don't know. It's it's just like a very interesting. Yeah. It also, you know, this this question of, you know, access is a big one because right now a lot of the places that are reopening are outside of in the New York area at least, like outside of the city. You see spaces in the Hamptons and galleries moving out to the Hamptons, which I'm not thrilled about because that is just this tiny enclave of, you know, a very select few who then get to see art as if life is totally normal, you know? <laughs> um, I, I've, I've been thinking about going up to, um, to Dia Beacon when it reopens, um, and I think that experience will be, you know, a little less anxiety-inducing because of the crowds, as you say, um, but also kind of open spaces like Storm King, um, which has, you know, some, some always great to visit the Storm King, always great to see public art, but I'm lucky in that I have access to a car so I can get there, you know, but not everybody does. So then this whole question of who gets to see art, you know, who gets the chance to kind of make that part of their lives is a difficult one. You know, it's really, really hard. And I don't know when that is going to be solved, how it's going to be solved as museums kind of reopen. Um, We've seen some you know, museums in other cities opening for the first month just to essential workers or students or, you know, kind of um, local communities. 
um, to make sure that those kind of local audiences get first access, which I think is great. Um, you know, I wish I wish there were a way that like the way that restaurants have tables outside and are able mm. to serve people. If there is a way to have street side art viewing, that would be cool. Yeah. I mean, I think I, at least in New York, we are. I mean, you know, it's not going to the Met, but we, we're lucky in that we actually have options. I mean, I'm planning a trip soon to Socrates Sculpture Park. That's all outdoors, and they've got new commissions going up, and the show is about monuments, so it's extremely timely. Um, and, like, the Public Art Fund just opened a new show of Art on the Grid, and it's on bus shelters throughout the city. So, so like, I mean, we actually in New York are pretty lucky in that we do at least have some options outside of museums, you know? The New York Historical Society doesn't open until the 11th of September, but they've arranged this free courtyard exhibition outside about the city under quarantine just to give people a taste of, of something. That is great. But the access question also is interesting because I've thought about the car thing a lot. Like, for instance, I don't have a car, but I would love to go to Art Omai where there's a Howardina Pendel show that just opened and then there's also all of the sculptures at Art Omai. Um, but it, you know, it's also a question in the city. I mean, I'm not that comfortable taking the subway. I went to two galleries in Chelsea and it was extremely anxiety provoking because of the subway. So I don't even know if I would go to the Met if it opened. I know. Yeah, that is, I, I, I rode my bike into the city yesterday, but that was its own, <laughs> its own trek and dealing with people going the wrong way or not wearing masks that kind of carries its own, its own anxiety. Well, and the idea also, like, I think it was interesting when everything first shut down, I feel like I saw some conversations going on about, like, uh, access questions in general, right? Like, we, as able-bodied people who, uh, like, we, we've always prioritized the museum-going experience and or the gallery-going experience, which makes sense because that's the best way to see art, but, or if it's made for that context. But, you know... Uh, there were a lot of conversations early on about like, oh, well, all these things could have been accessible online before for people who are disabled or immunocompromised or can't get around for whatever reason. Um, so I, I feel like those questions still stand. Um, and we have this privilege in even being able to just make the decision about whether we can take that risk to go see art. Like if I were an immunocompromised art critic, I would be out of a job, right? Like I wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. Especially, you know, um, like as you said with with making things accessible online, it's not just a matter of putting up images or putting up video 360 degree kind of scans of a of a space. You have to make sure it is properly descriptive that that it it can be seen and viewed and heard and you get it in different forms. It's not just about doing a digital version of the exhibition. It's making sure that it's fully accessible you know, which, is, which isn't which is what has been kind of widely understood, I think. I mean, it seems like museums are making more of an effort to to make that happen. They are. I just hope it lasts. I worry that any gains being made are just being made uh, in service of current conditions and may not be like longstanding changes. Do you think people like once uh, once travel restrictions and things like that are lifted that will go back to the to the old ways of jumping on a plane and heading over to see an opening like we used to? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know either. I mean, I think 
that some people definitely will. Whether yeah. it will be the same amount of people, I don't know. But I feel like there are some people who that's their life, and I just would be shocked if they completely changed it. But what do you two think? My big worry is that we're going to end up with two different kinds of art worlds. Hmm. That we're going to have we're going to have an art world of people able to go and see whatever they want to see, and then one that is equally passionate and invested in art but isn't able to. But to play devil's advocate, don't we already have that? I don't know. I feel like there are plenty of artists who can't travel. I mean, I feel like the people who can travel all the time are the, us critics and people who get press trips. Um, yeah. Other writers. Or, you know, we have publications that pay for us to go. Or they're like jet-setting curators and stuff. But there's plenty of other people who can't. That's true. Very true. It'll be interesting to see if school children return in force to museums. I mean, that's been a major thing for school children over the years. And now a lot of educators have lost their jobs. And of course, parents, parents are very nervous and so are the schools. And whether they'll ever be able to organize these trips in, in substantial numbers again is a big question for me. Yeah, absolutely. Especially we don't even know if schools are going to be, you know, physically held physically, if it's going to be, um, if it's going to be actually going to school, going into classrooms, or if it's all going to be distance learning, like we've we've had over the past few months, if that's going to continue. Because museums already in the last, you know, couple decades have picked up arts and cultural education from public schools because there isn't funding for that. So now we have the added difficulty in that museums aren't funding that education. So what happens to arts and cultural education at all for school children? Especially because I feel like the two main groups that many museum education departments are organized around are school visits and tourists. So what happens in the absence of both of those, basically? <laughs> well, you wrote a story for our July-August issue about the loss of education jobs at MoMA. Most of those people were on contract or you know, didn't have full-time status, but um, they had real bridges to underserved communities, and they've lost those people. Yeah, their labor, it wasn't necessarily... Maybe it was misclassified, I don't know, but I mean, it's. I think sometimes you say on contract institutions can bet on people thinking like, oh, they're just contract workers, whereas they've had relationships for decades with the museum and with the organizations they're working with. Right. It's, it's not so much freelance as, as part of the institution, just not treated as part of the institution. Yeah. Which is like part of the larger culture anyway, right? I mean, I'm a freelance writer. <clears throat> I'm on contract wherever I work adjuncts same thing I mean you know lots of people who are contingent workers it's pretty common these days but yeah it is interesting to see think about like what museum education departments will look like without those main constituencies coming into the museum presumably yeah definitely well as as you know it sounds like it's not going to be a very straightforward reopening process it's not just going to be doors open let's go see some art there's a lot to think about with all of this I would hope that institutions would use this pandemic as a catalyst to really, re genuinely rethink some stuff. I don't know if they will, but I would, I think, you know, it's like this moment where we could actually really make change and institutions could re rethink how they interact with the public and how they think of access, like all these things, how they consider education. This could be a time of like reinvention. So I, I hope that some of them will. 
Yeah, it's true. It's a time to be able to focus in on kind of core needs, you know, for for the communities that they're meant to be serving. Exactly. I mean, there are Midwestern museums that, I'm not going to name names, but, you know, I can think of museums where they are located in a specific place, but they seem to be serving some kind of, like, nebulous international or national audience. So what would happen if those institutions refocused on the communities they actually are located in? I mean, that would be great. Thank you guys for joining us today. Thank you, Jillian. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you. Thank you. Again, do check the website of any museum or gallery before you visit. And finally this week, and indeed for this series, it's the work of the week, and it's a slightly unusual one. The artist Hassan Hajaj has chosen an album cover, Dr. Alimentado's Best Dressed Chicken in Town from 1978. The cover photograph, credited to D.K. James, features Alimentado himself on a Jamaican street, with naked torso and jacket slung over his shoulder, shorts with a wide open fly, and a pair of slip-on leather shoes, one of which is falling off. But this image marked Hajaj when he saw it as a teenager. You can see an image of the cover on our website, click on the podcast link and look for this episode. Hassan, this is a bit uh, of a first in terms of our series of works of the week because you've chosen an album cover rather than the work in, an, in a museum. Can you tell me a bit more about it? You know, I was sort of just going to reggae. Um, you know, it was a new sound for me. I just arrived in England and um, I remember going to... You know, record shop, we used to go every Friday when we used to get paid when we was working, I was working in the factory. And we had, you know, Friday was our buying record, the 12th inch or an album. And I remember seeing this there, just, I think it just came out. And I was like, what is it? It can't be the the singer being dressed like that. It was just such an, a powerful picture for me. It's sort of, you know, normally you see glass or some, some kind of idea to sell the record. And it just stuck with me. Um, as an image, um, so this is one 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 of the images that are sort of you know uh, highlighted photography in the sense for me. The, the thing about this album cover is it seems to me like it's 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 an image it's it's a it's pure street photography in the sense that, as you say that's they're sort of un, utterly unmediated. It's almost like the photographer's not there, and yet it is such a sort of direct and powerful and very cl- clearly carefully composed image. Actually, did you when you saw it think? I want to do that, or was it was it a much slower process than that? It was much slower process, but I think you hit some good notes there. It was thought of, it was set up, 
but when you look at the album cover you really can smell where it is you know you can feel the space the people in the picture it becomes a strong image and for me i suppose in my practice i also use this uh you know where i suppose i study body language and then trying to set up when i'm setting up especially my exterior shoots and always trying to make it cinematic something that hopefully a person trying to work out where is it what's happening at that moment um so yeah so these kind of pictures are early street photography in a sense so yeah so it definitely affected me but it was definitely a slow burn to, to you know i mean you know i bought that album in the 70s you know i didn't start taking pictures until like really late 80s so it was a slow burner right and it's interesting that like now you're a photographer yourself and now you're making images do you do you see it in a way differently from the way that you did then has being an artist yourself given you a different perspective on it yeah definitely i mean you know like uh, as i say i wasn't thinking seeing that image that i was going to be doing photography no way but i think you know also because i've been doing photography for a while and you have practice you learn as you go along and you get to understand what you know what you're doing what your work is about so it was something that obviously i would think of it differently now i would think of it like you said i could think of it oh well the photographer probably had to work out the shoot you know did if that's the costume for the singer to wear that you know to have to go and work out uh, the location the time of the day or, or was it just they went out and vibed you know so you kind of think that way so this these things do come afterwards but when you see that image it, 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 i wasn't wasn't too sure if it's real or if the artist if that's the artist or there's just a picture of the thing but you know when you look at the title you could see there's a bit of sense of humor there as well going on so it's it's a strong image with sense of humor and 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 you know gives you a, a, an essence of time and where it is you came to the uk didn't you in, in the early 70s right and you were about is it right you were 12 yes just turned just turned 13 yes right when i think about reggae and london in the 70s it was a sort of rival counterculture to punk or an immersed counterculture with punk and I wonder if your experiences of reggae informed your love of this image too. Did you did you go to those those famous dub clubs and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, I was really lucky, and I came to England like um, seventy three, um, not speaking English, uh, going to school where there was no Moroccan kids in my neighbourhood. There's no Moroccan kids, so I found myself really the. Uh, friends that I made at that point of time were people who had similar journey being the outsiders being put in in this new land and this new new city um, and at some point I felt closer to people that had that journey like me and I, so I had lots of friends from the Caribbean and there was a period of time that you know I was really lucky when reggae was at its sort of still purist still you know still kind of uh, not mainstream yet uh, where I've been, I was able to go to the blues and to the sound systems, to the clashes, to really experience it, its essence, you know, with the goat curry getting cooking. And it was a different time where every weekend, you were, you know, you could, people like people of colour can get um, a venue to play. So somebody would give up their house for, uh, you know, a, 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 a blues, for example, and that would be like friends or their cousins and stuff like this so i was really exposed to the culture and the music and that's why i would say my first music i got into when i came to here was really reggae and dub so when every friday we'll go to a record shop 
in Kentish Town. Uh, it was run by an English guy, and they would spend, you know, we get paid on Friday. The, the thing you buy like one or two 12 inches, and, and you go home and you have that weight of it. So it was, yeah, it was very important. So the reggae album covers also became something to look at. You know, they were different. They were, they were superheroes, you know, the, the characters. Dread was different, you know, it was all new. So at the moment, you know, we can, it's it become, you know, uh, sort of everybody can see it. But then it was something totally new. So, yeah, it was a big influence in, 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 my, in my work, in my ways of thinking and stuff like that. And you sort of say they became superheroes. There's a sense of that in your own work, isn't there? The the the, the protagonists of your your work are always confident. There's a sort of drama about their posing. So do you sort of actively want to create that kind of strong sort of um, or sort of almost indomitable indomitable kind of persona in the people that you photograph? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I always hope, but you know, I'm just the person who's taking the picture. But I'm always hoping the person, the sitter, is the boss is the you know it's the energy of the picture so that's my my way and it's coming from i suppose a background of similar like when you see the reggae albums and stuff like that of making something out of nothing you know trying to the underdogs and this happened naturally it wasn't something i went and thought about it was just what was around me and i started taking pictures and it felt correct and as as i say as time goes along you start to understand your practice and the kind of people you're attracted to and stuff like that so yes i mean there's there's a bit there's definitely that it's uh, you know it's, tr- it's showing the strength of the of the of the person that's uh, that's what i'm trying to highlight all the time and of course you know with this cover there's the, there's that iconography of the street there's there's not just the people the protagonists but there's there's cars there's a sort of a bustle of a city about it and of course your work is deeply informed by those kind of everyday experiences isn't it you've got those you very actively include kind of commercial products which frame your works can you say something about that and about why what attracted you to bring that very everyday quality into the work well, I think, you know, firstly, you know, all my pictures that, you know, you're probably talking about mainly my sort of studio photography, um, they're, they're all taken in the street. So I don't, don't, don't take them uh, in the studio. So I'm actually active in the street. So you have this, uh, you know, that you don't know if it's going to rain, people passing by. Um, and i am got addicted to that. And also I'm not a technical photographer with, you know, to use good lighting. Again, going back to what I said earlier on, it was just something that happened naturally over the years, you know, taking pictures out in the street, um, travelling. I think all my influences between the two lands, between Morocco and growing up in England, and this sort of came out of my work. But also my early work in the 90s was called Graphics from the Souk, which was really all about Arabic products that I've took pictures off and it was a uh, photoshop was new and i printed them on canvas and that was really to just share with my friends in the 90s my friends from uh, brazil from the caribbean graffiti artists graphic designers because then arab culture wasn't seemed to be cool you know it wasn't you know it was didn't have that coolness about it and i thought while well, all these people gave me such great insight of their cultures and stuff i wanted to share something from my my culture so it started with this it was all about arabic products that i grew up with and then when i was started to show my photography i wanted to bridge my old work into the new work so i played with the products actually have them in the frame and also using this kind of idea of repeated patterns like the mosaics of the gelige um it's sort of kind of on this idea also i found sadly enough products communicate to people 
more than the images. So I found this a way of uh, attracting the eye of the person, and it then I realised it, it could be anybody. It goes past the colour, the age, and male, female, because everybody's sad enough is attracted to all these brands somehow because it's all there in the back, you know, back of the brain. Um, and then hopefully that will take him into my work and take him into a journey and find out different layers. So this again came with time as I started to find strength of what, um, uh, you know, what my work and what the brands do. And on top of this, I also wanted to, you know, when I was started to show photography, I was showing it in kind of contemporary art galleries and arenas and art fairs. It was still very difficult. This was in the 90s, late 90s. It was accepted, but it wasn't accepted as it is now, uh, photography as a contemporary art. So the idea of the frame, I didn't want to just send a print. I wanted to have the frame as part of the work. So I took the idea of when you go to the museum and you see like a painting from the 1700 and you see that painting with that frame was literally made for that painting and it stayed with it until you know so the moment i'm looking at it so i wanted to kind of to take this idea and try and create a frame you know uh with with my image so all these kind of thoughts come into to to this idea i wonder if how much like music like which obviously informs this album cover it's, it's you know the music's embedded in it to a certain degree and you 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 look at this image and you and you you hear music i wonder about that aspect in your own work you know to what extent is your work does your work have a sort of hidden or not a hidden even just it does your work have a kind of musicality a hundred percent i mean i don't know if you if people want to google hassan hajjaj and go in videos you could see our shoot i normally quite a lot of the times i have musicians playing live when i'm shooting um you know when i when i was using film um uh, when i was shooting like more uh interior indoors i would literally pr press the button on beats you know the, which means i would flow with the sitter so if i'm moving with the camera with the music the sit so then you find the room going so the music is really large it's a large part of, of my work fantastic hassan thank you so much for talking to us pleasure pleasure Hassan Hajjaj's exhibition, The Path, is at the Arnolfini in Bristol, UK, until the 1st of November. And that's it for this week. Do subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. And please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already and give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The producers of The Week in Art are Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. David is also the editor. Thanks to Gareth and Anna, Helen, Nancy and Gillian and Hassan. And thank you for listening. Do join us on the 5th of August for the first episode of A Brush With with Michael Armitage. See you then. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online art anytime.